Welcome to the Sheila Karma Extractive Podcast. Once again, my guest is Patrick Heller. Patrick is an advisor at the Natural Resource Governance Institute and a fellow at the Center for Law, Energy and Environment at the University of California in Berkeley. He has recently been assigned a new role at the Natural Resource Governance Institute to take on leadership of several programs and supervised teams. His research previously focused on governance of state-owned entities, and he has worked with enterprises, governments, and activists all over the world as they think through how to help these companies deliver benefits to citizens. Patrick, welcome to the Sheila Kama Extractives, and wonderful to be speaking with you again. Thanks so much, Sheila. It's a real pleasure to be here with you. Fantastic. So, you know, I wanted us to look at what the future of our state-owned uh, extractive companies might look like in a world in which, as you know, uh, increasingly development finance institutions, and for that matter, up to 32 countries have banned finance of fossil fuel projects. Where do state-owned entities uh, go from here? Yeah, this is a really critical question. I mean, just to provide a little bit of context for your listeners at the outset, state-owned companies in the oil and gas sector are already producing more than half of all uh, of the oil and gas in the world. They're spending almost half of the capital that's being invested in the sector. Um, and so they are already dominant players in this space, but they're facing huge uncertainty, right? I mean, the world needs to shift dramatically away from fossil fuels um, and the question of what these companies will do, how they will adapt their business model um, is, is a really significant one that are facing all of these, all of these state companies. As you note, um, their finance in the sector is increasingly tight, right? And for good reason, right? The climate crisis requires not just a reduction in demand for oil and gas, but a significant reduction in supply as well. And so we're seeing both from development finance institutions and from, you know, from private finance, um, tighter and tighter uh, terms and, and a tighter and tighter market for, um, for finance. It's a huge question for state-owned companies and for their governments, to be honest, right? Um, do they borrow more? Do they um, try to spend a larger share of public revenues? Um, how do they deal with a, a tighter marketplace? And one of the things that we are really focusing on is a real need for state-owned oil and gas companies to re-examine their portfolios and to de-risk, because a lot of the spending that they would have done in past generations may no longer make sense when we look at the long-term future of the oil and gas industry. Um, we haven't seen in some cases, state-owned companies really stress testing their portfolios and their future investment plans against climate risk or climate related financial risk. And the time is now for them to start to do it as the market gets tighter and tighter and the need for uh, global action to fight climate change gets you know, more and more and more obvious. So the, the, when you think of uh, uh, state-owned uh, oil and gas companies de-risking, what are some of the things that uh, you know, come to mind in terms of how they might uh, de-risk their portfolios in view of decarbonization? 
Yeah, I would say um, three things principally. Um, the first, and in my view, the most important is stress testing their portfolios from an economic perspective. Um, so what I mean by that is looking across the portfolio of current projects, but most importantly, prospective future projects and seeing which of those projects would, would generate a, a meaningful positive return under a variety of energy transition scenarios. You know, So um, this is something that some state-owned oil and gas companies are doing. Equipetrol from Colombia, for example, has started to do this, but most are not. Um, and you know, it, it, it involves looking at the break-even prices of uh, projects across the portfolio and saying, okay, if the, if the long-term oil and gas price is X, which of these projects break even? If it's Y, which break even? And to look at a variety of scenarios to see, okay, if the world does transition rapidly away from oil and gas as is necessary um, to fight climate change, what does that mean for our portfolios? We took a look uh, last year at all of the future um, projects in the portfolios of national oil companies all over the world. And we found that there is roughly um, uh, almost 500 billion in future spending future investment that wouldn't break even if the world met uh, the Paris goals or came close to them. So that's $500 billion that would be sunk into new oil and gas projects, um, risking the world's climate ambitions, but equally importantly for these companies, putting public capital at risk that, that may not break even. Um, and so that's, that's number one is just looking at the break-even prices across the across the portfolio and seeing, all right, how are we managing the risk associated with these projects? The second way to de-risk is to uh, take a look at the greenhouse gas intensity of production. We know that going forward with things like the European carbon border adjustment mechanism and other pieces of climate policy that are that are in the works, that dirtier oil and gas, quote unquote, oil and gas that is more greenhouse gas intensive to produce and consume um, will be at a disadvantage in the marketplace. And so there's a, you know, a, a, a somewhat low hanging fruit for state owned oil and gas companies is to look at their projects that are most greenhouse gas intensive, um, reduce their investment in those projects, but more broadly speaking, to invest in, uh, in making ongoing production um, less greenhouse gas intensive, reduce flaring and venting, for example, use cleaner power in production. That's another way that they can be um, increase their chances of occupying a somewhat larger share of the remaining global carbon budget. And then the third thing to do is to look at new areas of potential business activity or, or, or growth. Um, you know, we have some state-owned oil and gas companies that are starting to invest in clean energy and looking for comparative advantages there. Um, you know, there are ways in which companies can start to say, okay, how do we anticipate what the energy markets of the future are going to look like and what role might we play uh, in those markets? That's not going to be an easy transition for a lot of these companies, um, but it's important to be looking for opportunities to think about what role a state company may play in a lower carbon future. Mm. So, so this seems fairly uh, comprehensive, but also really very strategic because if I hear you correctly, 
on the one hand, you're saying focus on really profitable assets, no more fat, uh, because, you know, as we go into the future, it's critical that whatever assets you have uh, can bring money into the public coffers and take much less out, so to speak. The other is you're saying reduce your level one emissions because that's mm -hmm. in a way your value proposition. That's how you're going to justify yourself in the transition phase by demonstrating that you're moving in that uh, uh, direction and then divest in other areas and move money from uh, you know, national oil and gas companies to other uh, more environmentally friendly. So, I mean, to the extent that you're engaging either companies or governments themselves, what has been the, the, the initial uh, response to, to this suite of uh, scenarios? Yeah, thanks for the question. And you know, the last part of the, the last part that you added at the end of your question, I think is something that is, is really important for us to focus on. And so I'm glad you added it in, added it in. In a lot of cases, it's not just the state company uh, itself that really matters here. And one of the things that we've been trying to do in our work is to talk to governments um, and to talk to ministries of finance in particular and to think about, um, help, help encourage them to think about, okay, what does our future economic model as, as a country look like? You know, in a, in a lot of oil and gas producing countries, the state company has been such a dominant player for such a long period of time. And with the global energy transition, with the need to accelerate the global energy transition, it's important for governments to, in some sense, sort of um, reassert a role in policy setting in, in the sector that, you know, maybe that sounds obvious, right? But in so many cases, oil and gas has been such a dominant industry that the state company becomes a sort of de facto policymaker. And why does that matter? Well, in my view, that matters a lot for these questions because an oil and gas company, a state company by its nature, as should be the case, um, exists in order to maximize its own chances of profitability um, uh, and, and of, of revenues um, over the long term. Well, over the long term, the oil and gas sector is getting riskier and getting risky in, in new ways. And the, the risk profile that makes sense for a state company won't always now be the risk profile that makes sense for its government shareholders. And so one of the things that we're really um, you know, trying to, to help participate in, in in the countries where we're working is public dialogue and support to ministries of finance and, and other public entities to sort of reflect upon what is our risk tolerance as a country? Um, what should we be investing in as a country? And in some cases that will mean um, reducing the public investment back into the oil and gas sector itself. You know, most, most state-owned oil and gas companies reinvest half or more of the money that they're taking in from, from the sector right back into the sector itself, that may not make sense in the same way in a lot of places anymore. And so, you know, the public dialogue and, and a sort of, you know, focus on questions that make sense for the nation, um, including what makes sense for the state company, but not exclusively what makes sense for the state company, um, I think are really critical. T to answer your question more directly, 
you know, I think we're seeing a real mix in, in experiences and, and receptivity to some of these questions in, in different places. You know, in many of the places that we're working, there is an increasing appetite for questions about what do we do after oil and gas or how do we use the resources that we have now to invest in a broader future or, or a more sustainable future. But there's also some resistance because the, you know, the old business models have been the way in which economic life has existed in, in a lot of countries you know, for years or, or decades. And so shifting gears to think not about ending oil and gas production now, it's clear that it will continue to be an important part of, of the economy of so many countries, but beginning to think about how to use this moment to invest in a future that is more sustainable so that 10, 20 years from now, you know, the country is not as dependent on oil and gas as has been the case uh, now. Mm. So, yeah, uh, this is very interesting. A, a couple of uh, things come to mind. The first is whether or not in these three scenarios you see oil differently from gas. Uh, and secondly, whether you see uh, new entrants uh, in the space of petroleum responding differently from established state-owned entities. And here I have in mind, for instance, the Indian Ocean gas deposit in both Mozambique and mm -hmm. Tanzania. So let's deal with the first question. Uh, your, your three uh, scenarios for de-risking, do you see them applying pretty much the same for oil and gas, or do you think uh, oil might have a slightly nuanced approach uh, to how you know state-owned oil companies deal with this risk? Yeah, great question. So, um, I mean, not just for state-owned companies, but, you know, for oil and gas companies, uh, for all oil and gas companies worldwide, I think we've seen a shift um, towards uh, companies looking, looking to try to increase the percentage of their portfolios that are, that are, that are composed of gas, decrease uh, the percentages that are made up of oil, in part because if you look at um, global climate models, there is a more there is a, a more rapid pressure to shift away from oil than there is to shift away from gas. And so, you know, we're seeing the, the big state companies in the Middle East try to shift um, their portfolios progressively towards gas. We're seeing it among international oil and gas companies as well. But I would say that the, the story is not as simple as as that in the sense that um, gas comes with its own challenges and its own problems, right? Um, building natural gas infrastructure can often be quite complex and quite expensive. Uh, and so, you know, for new projects in particular, if there's a need to invest in quite heavy um, gas infrastructure that has a long payback period, there's a significant kind of risk that exists there as well, right? That, um, you know, that, that uh, by the time a project would be paid back that the transition will have progressed in such a way that it will be difficult to realize those returns. There's also big questions around the use of gas in domestic energy systems, um, where you know there are a lot of countries that are saying, okay, we want to use um, we want to use our gas as a way to increase energy access. And I understand the appeal of that, right? Lots of oil and gas producing countries have very significant energy deficits and see gas as a way to, to, to help narrow those deficits. One of the things that we encourage, we don't take a, in NRGI a very dogmatic approach to some of these questions, 
But we do try to say, okay, but let's think about as you are, as a country is um, contemplating building, um, you know, uh, significant expensive infrastructure around gas, let's look at what the risks are associated with, with, uh, with those kinds of investments. How long would it take to pay back? Will the financing be available in order to make it happen? Does the construction of such significant infrastructure impact the country's broader plans around energy transition on its own and, and reduce the incentives for cleaner energy sources? And so one of the things that I think is really important when thinking about gas investments in particular is to ask a really structured and data-driven data set of questions so that the country can make a, a, you know, a sort of informed decision about you know, what its risk tolerance is around different versions of, of, of these projects. Hmm. So, so that was that was in response to the first part of your question. I, I went on so long, I forgot, the, I forgot the second part. Well, actually, you did touch on it, uh, albeit indirectly. But the question itself was, uh, you know, will startups uh, be affected differently uh, uh, in terms of the de-risking scenarios? Or do you see startups basically having to answer the same three uh, fundamental uh, questions? But, but you did say that uh, you, know, you have to look at the cost of infrastructure in gas projects. And that's what I was really thinking of. And, and, and yeah. I think uh, you know, what you're saying is that just because um, it's a new project doesn't mean that uh, it's lean and mean. In, in, in gas projects, you might find the cost of infrastructure is prohibitive, in which case you are back to where you started. You don't want to put money in areas where uh, the state-owned entity is not going to be as profitable as it is necessary in the uh, transition period. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, I, I mean, new projects in which the investment hasn't already been made, you know, are, are in some sense fundamentally at a disadvantage um, right now, right? I mean, and it, I, I guess that's, that's obvious in some sense in that, you know, the, 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 the money hasn't been spent yet or it hasn't been secured yet in, in many cases. You know, the, the IEA, the International Energy Agency, has said that in a world in which the world met the Paris uh, climate goals and you know, in a world in which um, we had achieved net zero uh, energy by 2050, that there's no room for new projects that haven't already started up. Um, and that's not, you know, that is not a sort of moralistic um, assertion on the IEA's part. Essentially, they ran the numbers and said, you know, if we got to, uh, to net zero, what would that mean in terms of global oil and gas demand? Um, and what would be the kind of consumption that would be associated with, you know, with that kind of a long-term pathway? And it means that projects that, that where the investment hasn't already been made yet wouldn't break even, right? Uh, because, you know, we'd be looking at demand in a, in a much lower scenario than what we've had so far, consumption in a much lower scenario than what we've had so far. So when, that's not a prediction on the IEA's part. That's a, um, a, you know, an analysis of what would occur if that was the scenario in which, you know, that the world reached. So now for individual state companies or individual companies, period, what it means is you have to assess, um, okay, how long, you know, how likely is it that we're going to be in that kind of demand scenario? And do I have some reason to think that I will be able to beat the average if we, you know, if we get even anywhere close to uh, to net zero, 
Um, and, you know, everybody thinks, or there's, a, there's human nature to say, oh no, I'm gonna be the one that beats the average. I'm gonna be the one that, is, that finds a way to be profitable, um, you know, even when, when on average we, we don't or, or the industry isn't. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I always try to remind those that I'm working with is, okay, let's do a, try to do as realistic and in-depth a, a kind of scenarios planning exercise as you can in order to, to make decisions with, you know, with, with that kind of real, you know, risk reward uh, uh, context in, in mind. Yeah, so uh, you remind me of uh, something uh, I'm very passionate about, and, and it's the notion of uh, uh, regulatory agility. And by that, I mean mm -hmm. governments being quick of the mark and not assuming that uh, things will always be as is, especially in the uh, extractive sector, assuming that just because the world demands a particular product now doesn't mean that'll be like that for the next 30 years. And that when you make a discovery or when a company makes a discovery, state-owned or otherwise, you've got to move. And so when you think of uh, the 20 years since the discovery of the gas of the uh, Indian Ocean, you think, my God, in that space, those countries have virtually potentially rendered uh, those assets uh, redundant because they were not quick of the mark. They just assumed they could drag their feet and you know, drag their negotiations. All the while, the world around them was changing. Isn't that uh, extraordinary to think of it? Yeah, and, and right now the world is so unpredictable when it comes to all of these things that absolutely agility matters um, quite a lot. I would say that another thing connected to that that I think about a lot is um, the need for governments to have joined up and integrated planning, which we 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 it would, which sounds like an obvious point, but in reality is complex, right? And so, you know, the, the number of times that you know we're we're very involved in uh, NRGI works closely with Chatham House and the Commonwealth Secretariat on a project called the New Producers Project, which is a, a project that brings together. Um, governments that are have been trying to build an oil and gas industry, um, you know, that didn't have it before. And the ground is shifting under these countries really rapidly. And one of the things that, you know, that we've seen is that very often, and, and, and you know, the leaders from these countries that are part of the, a part of the, the, the project say all the time, um, the finance ministry and the energy ministry and the climate entity and the ministry of environment and the oil and gas ministry and the national oil company are not talking to each other nearly as much as they should. And so, you know, the opportunity to kind of really build joined up plans that take into account all of the commitments that a country makes to its citizens is something that falls by the wayside sometimes and, and results both in Kind of economically suboptimal um, uh, choices, but also kind of a lack of prioritization among different goals that that the country has. And I, I think that particularly now, you know, as the climate crisis is more and more urgent and obvious and impacting everybody's lives, but also as this industry, you know, takes you know different kinds of twists and turns, that kind of uh, intra-government coordination and and strategy is more important than ever. Hmm. So, you know, um, as you, you will no doubt uh, 
know the EU Energy Commission recently said that yes, gas will be relative to coal and uh, oil considered what they call uh, a, a transition energy source. I guess based on uh, the notion of de-risking, this surely implies then that at least for existing uh, projects that have been ongoing, if governments have to make a choice between where to put money, uh, it's logical to put it in gas uh, because with that decision, if you wish, uh, the EU has uh, extended the, the future and the life of those assets. Would that be uh, a fair way of uh, seeing it? Well, I would say it's a, it's a, com it's a, it's a complex and a, and a complicated question. I mean, one thing that I will say is that, you know, what we've seen from Europe, from the US, from the kind of big consuming, you know, big, large emitting countries, I would say we've, we see quite a lot of hypocrisy when it comes to, you know, the way in which they're treating gas and fossil fuels more broadly, right? Where, um, you know, uh, continuing to consume and even investing quite significantly in new oil, oil and gas production for themselves, um, while at the same time calling upon low-income countries to change more, more low-income countries, which, you know, uh, commit which which contribute much much less to climate change than than these wealthier countries do, um, calling on those countries to shift away in more dramatic and more rapid ways than than the wealthy countries are willing to do. And so, I mean, one thing that I like to you know, that I always like to frame as a starting point to to some of these questions is that for low and even middle income countries, seeing what Europe is doing versus what Europe is saying. Um, is, uh, you know, is always kind of quite striking. And I say that also by way of saying that um, as particularly low-income countries think about their own future investments, um, I don't think they can count on financial support um, for the gas sector, even if Europe and the US and others continue to hypocritically invest in, in it in, in their own borders. So from that perspective, I think there's still some significant uncertainty. The other thing that I would say is that, I mean, it harkens back to, to what we were speaking about earlier, that because these projects can be so large and so complex, making investment decisions has to look at not just where the markets are today, but to look at where things may be, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years in the future, both from the perspective of what I mentioned earlier in terms of how long um, uh, a gas project will take to pay back, but also in terms of other future potential um, evolutions in, in energy technology. It's a really difficult set of questions, and I'm no expert on the technological side of things. But unfortunately, I don't think we can say that it's sort of a you know a, a, a super straightforward set of set of calculations. I guess what I would say goes back to what I said earlier: analyzing cost, analyzing what would take what it would take in order for these projects to succeed, looking at what investment in gas would mean for demand and incentives around consumption of coal and heavy fuel oil, but also on the flip side, incentives for consumption and development of clean, you know, renewable technology as well. Um, complex set of questions, but I think it's important for countries to be looking at them as holistically as possible as they're making some of these decisions.
Mm. Now, so far we've been focused on the impact of uh, transition to clean energy on national oil and gas companies. I, I wonder whether we can flip that uh, approach and look at the impact that uh, national oil and gas companies uh, might have on the geopolitics of uh, decarbonization, especially given that by your estimate, uh, at the moment they produce about 50%. I mean, you know, are state-owned entities uh, leading the outcomes or do you see them as really being on the receiving side more than anything else? Yeah, great, great, great and important question. Um, so I, I will, I will answer that question in, in, in a couple of different ways. I, I would say that there are some state-owned oil and gas companies that are participating very actively in global debates and conversations around the industry's role in climate change. Um, you know, some of the Latin American NOCs, Ecopetrol from Colombia, um, uh, Petrobras from Brazil, um, the Ch Chinese NOCs like PetroChina are looking in, in a serious way at, okay, what their role is in, in the global climate community. Um, but I would say that broadly speaking, state-owned oil and gas companies have not been subject to the same kinds of pressures to start to get serious on climate change as international oil and gas companies have been. Now, one thing that I want to be clear about is the international, the IOCs have been dragging their feet tremendously as well, right? So, you know, sometimes you see NOCs kind of vilified and IOCs lionized as, you know, as though they were really taking sufficient action to change their businesses around climate change. Nobody is. The IOCs are not. The NOCs are not. But I think going forward, it is really important for um, NOCs to recognize their role um, in the climate crisis, but also for climate researchers and climate activists to be uh, examining how to bring NOCs more into these conversations, but also thinking about what kinds of tools um, can be brought to bear uh, in order to change the incentives of these companies or influence the incentives of these companies around, around climate. Um, there are different kinds of state-owned oil and gas companies, right? Some of them are not really subject to market pressure at all. Um, and, you know, for them, uh, you know, it is, it is pressure or collaboration with their governments that are the, that's, that are the only things that are going to get NOCs to, to move. But for others, you know, they do trade shares on public stock exchanges. They do borrow in international marketplaces. They do care about international reputational risks. Um, and so I think there are opportunities in some cases to, to really bridge the divide that exists right now between climate, the climate community and state-owned oil and gas companies, but no one has made enough investment to really bring them into the fore of these, of these discussions in a sufficient way. And I think, you know, from my perspective, one of the big things that, you know, we in the sort of you know, um, energy transition advocacy community need to do better is to figure out better ways in which to um, engage 
state-owned companies, you know, both with carrots and sticks um, uh, as the role of the oil and gas industry in, in, in climate and in global uh, energy, uh, you know, evolves. So uh, you are right that uh, the kind of uh, uh, pressure and uh, vulnerability that faces publicly listed companies is vastly different from that which faces uh, state-owned entities. But I think there's also another difference, which is that, as you know, not so much in the oil space as it is in, in minerals, perhaps, uh, just because of the, the, the uh, you know, demand for oil. Most of the state-owned entities, in my observation, uh, are very poorly managed and profitability has never been the focus. And so I wonder whether you envision uh, a situation in which as publicly listed uh, international oil companies divest and leave, for instance, countries like Angola, Nigeria, et cetera, do you envisage the state-owned uh, enterprise being the one that then takes on those assets? And, and, and if so, what does that do to the very new business model you, you are envisaging? Or do you think these assets will just become redundant? Well, I, unfortunately, I think both could happen. I think that state-owned companies could in some places invest in assets that become redundant. Um, and that means essentially, um, you know, wasting public resources in projects that will not break even going forward, um, and also, um, you know, uh, uh, limiting, uh, you know, limiting the the impact of divestment from from IOCs. We're starting to see some indications that in in some cases, you know, this may be happening, right? Where as um, publicly listed international companies are shifting their portfolios that national oil companies are at least expressing an interest in trying to buy up some of those assets. And so I think that the, I think that the trend, I think it's too early to call it a trend, sorry, but I think that, that the prospect of that is significant. And, you know, one of the thing, and, you know, and, and one of the things that you know, again, it, it keeps going back in my mind to this idea of effective risk assessment and for the, for the NOC and for the government more broadly to assess what its risk tolerance is in a realistic and, and significant way. Um, I think that in some cases when IOCs move away from these investments, we will see that, you know, the project just sort of dies or dissipates. But I think that in some cases we will see um, NOCs sinking significant shares of public resources into projects that you know then won't ultimately serve in the public interest. One thing that we've been really calling for is um, a more rigorous um, set of requirements around public disclosures uh, for climate-related financial risks, so that if a company is divesting from a project, is trying to sell its shares, that it has to disclose um, its own scenarios um, for what would happen to that project under a variety of climate and energy transition conditions, so that what we do, so that we don't see you know um, private companies or publicly listed companies selling assets because they no longer think that they uh, because they now think that they're too risky, without the public 
in the country that's actually using public resources to buy the country, to buy the asset, knowing um, you know, what those risks really are. So I think sort of a sea change in disclosures around climate-related financial risk of oil and gas projects in particular is really necessary in order to uh, support you know, more accountable public decision-making around these asset transfers going forward. So uh, in your three scenarios for de-risking, uh, which I, by the way, I quite like, I think they are, they, they are very logical and very strategic. And, and, and if follow through would help governments really have tools to analyze and rationalize their response rather than just a knee jerk and a sense of uh, either entitlement or a sense of being a victim from what you described as hypocrisy. The world is where it is now and there's no need in, uh, for us to dig our heels. What we need is how to move forward. So, so I think that, that I hope that you get some traction. But I, I, I'm, I'm struck by one omission. You know, the, the thing about state-owned entities is that they, they, they are developing a national asset, but they are also generating revenue for, for, the, for the public and other benefits. Uh, with that investment comes naturally some risk. I'm intrigued that uh, in your scenario, you don't consider the prospects that the governments just walk away from the investment and put it in the hands of citizens so that citizen private investors absorb the risk, uh, but yeah. the assets don't become. Why is that not a possible scenario in your construct of the three, uh, you know, de-risking uh, tools? Yeah. You're right. That it that should be a scenario, and and what it, in my in my mind it is sort of an implication, a one potential implication of scenario one. In other words, um, when or, or of or of track one of of the three that I referenced. In other words, um, when a state no longer thinks that a particular sort of investment is um, likely to be in the public interest, right, is likely to generate sufficient returns over the long term to, to justify the risk. Um, but the state still may want to see if it can earn tax revenue, for example, from, from such a project. Um, finding ways to shift the balance, right? Um, and whether that is, um, you know, um, limiting the financial, I mean, there, there are different mechanisms that, that can be used, right? One is just limiting the share of oil and gas revenues that the state company can use to reinvest and therefore um, essentially forcing the state company to um, more closely scrutinize its decisions about where it wants to buy in or where it wants to take equity in a project versus leaving that to private investors to do. It may mean in some cases selling some share of um, the assets in the state company itself, right? Um, you know, as a way to, at a more fundamental level, um, bring private capital into the sector rather than um, relying on state coffers quite, quite so significantly. That will be feasible in some countries. That's not. That's a complete political non-starter in some other countries. Um, and just more broadly speaking, I mean, you know, I tend to think in in sort of fiscal terms, and so, you know, the tools that the government can use to basically reduce the latitude that the state company has to be um, to be reinvesting still 
enable the company to make decisions, um, you know, in terms of its own commercial investments rather than the state taking over that function. But by being, I would say, a little bit stricter or a little bit, um, uh, you know, uh, more narrow in the latitude that the company has, forcing kind of a, you know, a, a tougher set of decisions, it's one way actually to shift um, you know the share of investment in in this that in any ongoing projects in the sector from the public coffers to um, to to the private sector. So we spoke uh, also about the fact that um, whatever happens in the transition is unlikely. Finance meaningful project finance will come out of Europe and the United States in the short and medium term, and that that alone means that uh, you know state-owned entities have to think hard about the choices they make. And so in the geopolitical space in which we find ourselves today, where uh, China is uh, at the table with uh, transition, uh, yeah. India is somewhere in between and Russia is probably gonna do something different. Aren't these uh, regions of the world potential sources of finance? Do, do, do you envision that, you know, uh, where America and Europe moves away, uh, the East might very well step in and say, well, we'll put money here. I think to a degree, yes, um, absolutely. And it's a complex, you know, it's, and it's a complex space. But I think it's also important to remember that, you know, China, India, others are also on a decarbonization path, right? And so, you know, they may not be as dogmatic in their approach to external finance as Europe and, and the US are. But, um, you know, Eastern countries are very much also looking towards a future of, you know, rapid transition away from the fossil fuel sector. Um, and therefore are trying to think about what that means in terms of not just their own consumption, but in terms of, you know, their own external investment. And so I would say that if countries in Latin America, Africa, Asia are sort of counting on, you know, China and other Asian countries to just kind of fill the gap. Um, I don't think it will be as simple as that. And I think that, you know, the, the shift away from finance um, in totality for fossil fuel projects is, you know, is a, a long-term trend that I think that oil and gas rich countries have to take into account, you know, as they're making some of these decisions and that state companies you know, have to assess that that reality as well as part of their planning. Yeah, so really the train has left the station. We can argue about the speed, uh, but that yeah. it has left is, is, is a certainty. And, and, and if you board it, you know that at some point it's going to stop. And, and so you might as well get off now as quickly as you can and then find more sustainable ways. So... Well, and especially, Sheila, I mean, I know, I know you know this, but especially for your listeners, for new projects, keeping in mind that, you know, a new, you know, we, we did a study a couple of years ago that looked at new oil and gas projects in Africa that found that the average new project takes 12 years to get off the ground from the moment that it's discovered to, to production. And so thinking about what 12 years will look like in, you know, in the context of these rapid changes, it's, it's an eternity. And so, um, you know, I think that kind of remembering that the question is not just, you know, what is the fossil fuel dominated system in which we clearly continue to live in today and clearly the world is not moving quickly enough to clean energy, but especially for investments today, 
in projects that haven't gotten off the ground yet. It's thinking about, all right, where might we be in a decade or, or, or longer? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, uh, you're right about that. I've spent enough uh, time in boardrooms to know that the way the world views extractive projects and the way extractive projects really are constructed in, in terms of the economics of uh, these resources is fundamentally different. And, and that's one of my greatest concerns is that this disconnect between public expectation and reality. And the reality of uh, you know, these development projects is that to get them right, both uh, technologically, infrastructurally, and financially, you need time. Uh, and uh, the, that time typically translates into a lot of money being spent and very little being received first by the project sponsors themselves and even much later typically by governments in terms of tax because it takes a hell of a long time to pay off. So, so I think your reminder that as we ponder these options, uh, especially with respect to new project, we must factor in just the, the project development phase and then the prospects that in that phase, the world changes completely. And that by the time we ship uh, or pump the, the, the uh, oil or gas for that matter, you know, the, the markets have dried up and technologies have moved on and the world is looking different. Th that is a real risk, uh, I think. And, and I think you are, you are, you are right to, to stress it. So, I mean, I guess the word here then is that at some point, asset redundancy is a reality. It's just which ones go first and at what yeah, pace. Yep. And, and yep. so if you think about it that way, how should state-owned uh, entities respond to the economic and social risk of this redundancy? Yeah, well, from, from my perspective, I think the most important thing, and I think it's, it's overdue in a lot of countries, is beginning from now um, a conversation about what the future economy will look like, um, and you know, beginning to think about what an equitable um, energy transition, both in terms of domestic energy within these producer countries, but more broadly speaking, in terms of what it, what the what what an economic model that can serve the public interests in over the long term looks like, and how to invest the proceeds that are still coming in from oil and gas um, uh, today in what that future will will be you know energy um, i does a lot of work in in ghana for uh, just to pick one example ghana has just launched a national energy transition um, uh, committee or commission which is charged with um, sparking a set of public conversations but then coordinating across government for the country to think about um, and to plan for okay how do we use the in, the oil and gas industry today but in service of a plan that is you know uh, future facing and equitable exactly how that process will progress in Ghana you know it, it, it's a relatively new process so it will remain to be seen but i think it's really critical from now i mean you know as you know Sheila over the you know over the decades people always talk about oil and gas dependency and how dependency is a risky road um, because you know the industry is so volatile and so unpredictable and can be an enclave economy. But what we've seen 
over and over again in so many countries is that, okay, during moments when prices are low, there's a conversation around dependency, then prices jump up again and everyone <laughs> forgets about that, right? Everyone forgets about diversification. I think that today, you know, with the future of oil and gas being so uncertain, and, and honestly, the future of the planet because of oil and gas being, being so uncertain, um, there is a need for a sustained public conversation and, and a real political attention on what it means to build an economy beyond oil and gas. And we're starting to see that in a few places, but I think a real push from activists in country, from the political leaders, from the, the domestic private sector and from the international community in having these public dialogues and resourcing and supporting um, efforts to actually figure out what transition will, will mean. This is also, by the way, a place where kind of the hypocrisy of you know, wealthy, high emitting countries really comes out quite strongly, right? That um, you know, uh, these countries haven't, de haven't delivered on climate finance commitments at all, and yet they are pressuring low income oil and gas producing countries to you know, give up uh, what has been the basis of, of their economies. That's not gonna work, right? Um, there needs to be simultaneously public accountability within the producer countries, but also international support in order to make a vision, to help a vision for um, a, you know, a new economic future become a viable reality. Well, um, you have given me and I hope my listeners a lot of uh, food for thought. And I think this notion that uh, the world can't have it both ways it's not a conversation we've had the last of. Uh, what I fear uh, for what is worth is that some emerging market countries that for whatever ideological reason or policy reasons don't agree with that, that climate change will use that as an excuse to dig their heels in. So I, I hope that uh, those responsible for motivating this climate finance uh, initiative understand that because it's otherwise it's self-defeating. Anyway, for now, let's leave it at that. Thank you very much for joining the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. It was really very interesting. Patrick? Thanks so much, Sheila. It's, it's such a pleasure to be here with you. Um, I love the podcast and uh, it's an honor to, to have a chance to, to take part in it. So thanks very much. <laughs>